0: So turn to Psalm 3, but also to 2 Samuel chapter 15, 2 Samuel 15 there. Psalm 3 and verse number 1, we start a brand new series today. Uh, Psalm 3 verse 1, Lord, how are they increased who trouble me? Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield for me. You are my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and I slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. How many are thankful God sustains us. 2 Samuel chapter 15, and I'm going to read about 20 verses here, a story right out of 2 Samuel 15, beginning in verse 13. A messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, we are your servants ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. And the king went out with all of his household after him but the king left ten women concubines to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and he stopped at the outskirts and all of his servants passed before him and all the Carathites, and all the Pelathites, and the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath passed before the king. And the king said to Atai the Gittite, why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and an exile from your own place. In fact, you only came yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today? Since I go, I know not where. Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. So David said to Itai, Go and cross over. And Ittai the Gittite and all of his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over and all the country wept with a loud voice. And all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron. And all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. There was Zadok also and all the Levites with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God. And Abathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. And... Show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you. Hemanas, your son and Jonathan, the son of Abathar, see, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. Verse 30. So David went up by ascent of the Mount of Olives. Look at this. And he wept as he went up. He had his head covered and he went barefoot. All the people who were with him, Covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went. Then someone told him, saying, "Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom." And David said, "O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness." Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God, there was Hushai, the archite, coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. Let's pray together, Father. Um, there are those in this room this morning that live their lives feeling like they deserve what they have gotten, feeling like their failures, their sin, their past is not worthy to be redeemed. And they live with guilt and shame. And they realize that what they have done in the past continues to haunt them, I just pray this simple prayer. May they be free from that today. Never again walking in that bondage. I pray, Lord, that you would take your word, which is alive and powerful, quicker than any two-edged sword, and that you would, by your Spirit, communicate the truth of that word to us today in a manner that would set us free, that would liberate us, that would help us to walk in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. I pray, Lord, that you would anoint me again as I pray every week, not because I deserve it. I do not. Not because I've earned it. There's no way it could be earned. But because, Lord, unless I am anointed of you, I cannot communicate and divide your word correctly. So I pray, God, that you would anoint me today, that you would supernaturally captivate the attention of everyone in this room, that we would hear the word of the Lord, we would make the connections that the Holy Spirit would have us make. And God, that you would bring transformation. Our lives would be changed today by the power of your word and by the power of your spirit. Help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which is from you, I pray. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we are going to open up a new series for the next six weeks, um, a very simple preaching series entitled, With the Psalmist We Pray. We're going to explore over the next six Sundays, six prayers prayed by the psalmist. Let me take just five minutes. I won't take, I hope, more than that, but just to kind of lay a foundation for this entire series this morning. Let me tell you a little bit about the series, a little bit about the Psalms. The book of Psalms, 150 in all, opens with a two-part introduction. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are really introductory. And then it moves, beginning with Psalm 3, our text this morning, into a section that is called Book 1. If Most of your Bibles will have the Psalms separated in five books, and so, Book 1 is a book of Psalms that are dominated by Psalms that we call Davidic. That is, that we suspect that they were written by David. Book 1, the entirety of Book 1, is really more of a book of prayer than it is a book of praise, even though Psalms is known as being a book of praise. In this series, we're going to look at six psalms. Today, we are looking at Psalm number three, and uh, then we will look next Sunday at Psalm 30, then Psalm 42, and then the Psalm of Repentance, Psalm 51, many people's favorites, Psalm 139, and then we will end six weeks from today with Psalm 145 that's just a little overview of where we're going. Let me give you the context to the third psalm. This is the psalm that we are looking at today. Now, in your Bibles, most likely, there is a superscription written over that psalm that reads like this, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Now, it is important to note that subscriptions or superscriptions, excuse me, were not part of the original text. They were added later. They did not come to us in the ancient form, and yet they do come to us as part of the finalized canon that the church fathers agreed upon. And so, as best we can, it's wise for us to try to treat that psalm in the way that it has come to us. Now there are some that doubt the authenticity of that superscription and wonder whether or not really that Psalm has to do with this time in David's life. But William uh, Van Gimeren wrote this in his commentary, there is no internal evidence that brings into question the authenticity of the superscription. And he's speaking specifically about Psalm three. And so that superscription says this is the period of time when David is fleeing for his life from his son, Absalom. Now, let me tell you that story. If you don't know that story, I'm gonna tell it to you real quickly. I'll do my best to put together the pieces, but many of you are familiar with the story. It's actually one of the most, I would suggest, when he fled from Absalom, one of the most sordid stories um, in all of scripture. Let me just talk you through it. It began with David's failure. In Second Kings chapter 11, the Bible tells us that at a time when kings normally go forth to battle, David stayed home. You know what David did? David went up on top of the rooftop, and he looked out over the kingdom, and he saw a young woman bathing, and he lusted after her. David was the king, and he should have been out doing battle, but instead he stayed home, and, and so his lust got the best of him, and he called for this woman to come to him, her name, of course, was Bathsheba, and he slept with Bathsheba, and she became pregnant. The problem was that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, could not have possibly been the father of the child because he was out on the battlefield. And so David knew that he had a problem and something he had to cover up. And so he immediately called when he found out that Bathsheba was pregnant, he called for his general and said to his general, I want you to bring Uriah home. And uh, I want you to tell Uriah. And he came and met with David and, and David said to Uriah, I want you to go home, you've worked hard. I want you to go and spend some time with your wife hoping that he would sleep with his wife and ultimately she would become pregnant and David was okay I'm covered now but it didn't happen that way Uriah was a man of honor and he said I cannot sleep with my wife I cannot experience pleasure while my men are out doing battle and so he slept on the doorstep and did not sleep with her and when David was heard about it he was angry And so David tried a second thing, he got Uriah drunk, thinking that maybe Uriah and his drunkenness would go in. I don't know why you all watch soap operas, I'm telling you, it doesn't get any better than this. Why do you get hooked on those things? Just read your Bible, all right? And so he sends in, he thinks that Uriah drunk will make a difference, and of course, still Uriah maintains his integrity. And so now David knows that there is no chance this is going to be covered up. So his next move was to tell his general to put Uriah at the front of the army. Put him on the front line so that he will be killed and that is exactly what happens. And so David kind of covers up but he still lives without guilt. He covers up what he has done until he thinks he's gotten away with it until Nathan the prophet comes to him. Nathan the prophet tells David this little parable and uh, about a man who's very wealthy, who has lots of sheep, but he steals a very poor man's only sheep. And he said to David, what do you think of that? And David said, that's awful. I think that man should be killed. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah And if all this had been too little, I'd have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, David, because you despised me. And you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did this in secret, but I will do this in broad daylight before all of Israel. And then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die, but because... But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. This, by the way, is when David penned Psalm 51 that we will look out in just a few weeks. So Nathan the prophet confronts David and David says, I've sinned, I'm the one. And Nathan said, you are the one. God's not going to kill you, but your child that was born illegitimately is going to die. And in fact, the child dies. David and Bathsheba then have another son, Solomon. But other punishments that Nathan prophesied will still occur. One of those punishments occurred because of all the upheaval in David's family. David, probably because he had failed so miserably himself, had a hard time holding his children to the line, didn't discipline them very well, and he had a son by the name of of Amnon. And Amnon fell in love with or in lust with his half-sister, Tamar. But instead of asking her hand in marriage, he deceives Tamar, acts like like he's sick, asks Tamar to bring him soup into his bedroom, and when she comes in the room, he rapes Tamar. Tamar had a full brother by the name of Absalom, who was also a son of David, and Absalom was so angry that his sister had been violated by her half-brother Amnon. He was so angry and expected David to do something, but David, perhaps paralyzed by his own sin, though he was angry, did absolutely nothing. Two years pass, and Absalom waits for David to do something, but when he doesn't, he can't hold it any longer, and Absalom conspires and has Amnon killed. And then he flees and escapes the country. David grieves that his son Amnon has been killed, but he also wants Absalom to come home. He just wants everybody to be happy again. And so finally Absalom, because of Joab, comes home, but then David refuses to see Absalom for two years. In the meantime, Absalom's bitterness grows. His anger grows. He's had it with his dad. Forget that his dad is the anointed one, imperfect, but the anointed one. Forget that. His anger and bitterness grows so much that he plots to overthrow his father. And through some very shrewd political moves, he wins the people over. And he leads a revolt against his father, David and drives David out of Jerusalem and away from the throne. So it's here that we pick up our text in 2 Samuel. And this is where we find the context for Psalm 3. Look at verse 30 of 2 Samuel 15. David continued, he's now running from Jerusalem. He continued up the Mount of Olives. He's weeping as he went. He's been driven from the throne. He's been driven from his home. He's been driven from the people he loves. He's weeping as he went. His head is covered and he is barefoot. What a pitiful picture. All the people with him have covered their heads too and they are weeping as they went. And David goes into hiding, likely inside a cave. Lots of time inside that dark cave to think about all the things he should have done differently. All of the regrets. If I would have done this. If I would have parented better. If I would have dealt with Amnon. If I would have been honest with Uriah. All of those things going through his mind. I'm here in this cave. I've lost everything that belongs to me because of my own failures. I deserve what I am getting. This story is just loaded with that kind of pathos, just that, that passion, that emotion. And it is here that he pens Psalm 3. I want to ask you to raise your hand, but anybody ever been there before, thinking, man, if I'd have done something differently, I would not have been in this mess. It's a controversial book written by Khalid Husseini, He's an Afghan-American. It portrays some very graphic and violent sexual crimes in the life of guilt and shame that is always seeking for atonement and forgiveness. The novel is called The Kite Runner, a movie was made after that book was written. Amir is the protagonist of the novel. Amir's life took a dramatic turn one day when he failed to rush to the aid of his servant and his friend, Hassan, when Hassan was being raped by a bully, Assef. Instead of helping him, Amir timidly hid behind a fence and he just watched the event unfold. And then later, when questioned, he acted like or pretended like he knew nothing about the act. This traumatic event combined with the cowardice hung over Amir for the rest of his life. At one point in the novel, Amir reflects on how the past can still haunt a person into their present. And he writes this, I became what I am today at the age of 12. On a frigid overcast day in the winter of 1975, I remember the precise moment. I was crouching behind a crumbling mud wall, and I was peering, peeking into the alley near the frozen creek. That was a long time ago. But it's wrong what they say about the past, I've learned, about how you can bury it, because the past claws its way out. Looking back now, I realize I have been peeking into that deserted alley for the last 26 years. David was inside that cave, peeking into the deserted alley of his failures and his shame and his regrets when he penned the words of Psalm 3. Let me share with you four lessons this morning that I trust will help you if you feel like Amir, if you feel like David peeking into the deserted alley of your past that you just can't seem to shake. First of all, we must acknowledge the unrelenting struggle. Look at what David said in the first two verses, Lord, how they have increased to trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Notice the struggle that David is having. Three things are stated. My enemies are many. Look at this. How have they increased to trouble me? My enemies are rising against me. The Hebrew word is kum. It's a technical term for witnesses in a legal proceeding. They are rising against me. My enemies are testifying against me. And thirdly, my enemies are speaking lies to me saying, there is no help for me in God. This triple repeated many, many are they who rise up against me. Many are my enemies, many are they who say there is no help for God. This triple repeated many seems to underscore the desperation that David feels. The charge of the enemies is not only against David, but against David's God. There's no help for him in Yahweh. The enemies are either saying, that God can't help him, he lacks the power, or God won't help him because of his failure and because of his sin. The enemies are screaming at David, there's no help for you, you deserve what you got. That's why you're in this cave, peering into the alley of your shame and failure. Nancy Wolford in the New International commentary of the Old Testament on the psalm says the assumption or intimation of claim that there is no help for another in God is not only an attack on a fellow human being but it is a limiting arrogant presumption against God there is for those of us who have regrets for those of us who have sinned or at least we feel sin deeply or had failures that we wished we could overcome, there is a, an unrelenting struggle with shame that we often battle with. In his book, By Grace Alone, Sinclair Ferguson identifies four major fiery darts that the enemy throws at us. The first one is, God is against you, Satan says. He's not really for you. How can you believe he is for you when you see the things that are happening in your life? Saying to David, God can't be for you. You've lost the throne. You're in a cave. The second fiery dart is, I have accusations I will bring against you because of your sin. What can you say in defense? Nothing. I've sinned. The third fiery dart of the enemy is, you can say you are forgiven, but there is a payback day coming, a condemnation day, Satan insinuates. How will you defend yourself then? Fiery dart number four, given your track record, what hope is there that you will preserve to the end? Again, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but many of you have felt those kinds of fiery darts. You've failed over and over. You've made more mistakes. You've made more promises that you didn't keep. And like David, like Amir, there's this unrelenting struggle. So number one, we must acknowledge the unrelenting struggle. Number two, we should confess the overriding truth. So David says in Psalm three, verse one and two, before we look at that verse, Lord, how are they increased to trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many are they who say there is no help for him and God. Those are lies. Yes. Yes. And so we have to confess the overriding truth, and David did. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield for me. My glory and the one who lifts my head. How many are thankful for the Lord this morning? We can listen to the lies of the enemy, but our confession needs to be one of truth. But you, O Lord, your shield about me. You are my glory and the lifter of my head. Notice this, that the counter of many lies is one truth, and that one truth is God's truth. The counter of many lies is one truth. Many are they who say there is no help for him in God. There are lots of lies, but you, O Lord, is the truth. Say amen if you believe that. David knew God's grace and he knew God's word. He was confident when he had repented in Psalm 51 that God had forgiven him. He had prayed that God would restore the joy of his salvation and he believed that God would do that. There are three titles to counter in the three manys A shield about me. You are a shield about me. Now the kingship, listen, look at me for just a moment. The kingship of David had been forcibly removed from him. He was no longer on a throne. Absalom sat on that throne. But he was protected by the kingship of God and his shield. This is really beautiful because normally a shield is only for the fronts. Only we, uh, normally those who in battle only have a shield to guard them on the front. But thou, O Lord, art a shield all the way around me. That's what the psalmist meant in Psalm 139 when he said, You hem me in before and behind. Thou, O Lord, art a shield all about me. Not only are you a shield, but you're my glory. The Hebrew word is kavod, it means weightiness, but in a good sense of splendor and might. A king's glory was the vastness of his majesty. Psalm 24, remember, God is called the king of kavod, the king of glory. William Van Gimmeren says the glory of God is nothing less than the revelation of his hiddenness. God is what we need in our situation. And David was saying, you are a shield about me and you are my kavod, you're my glory, you are, you are everything I need for this situation. And thirdly, you are one who lifts my head. It's just a Hebraism that refers to lifting up one's countenance, raising one's head from that of shame. You're the one that lifts up my head and puts a smile on my countenance and says, you don't have to look down any longer you can look to me and find hope and forgiveness. Look at this again. Many trouble me, but you are a shield. Many rise up against me, but you are my glory. Many say there is no help. Sin is too great. My failure is too devastating, but you are the one That lifts my head up from my shame. How many are thankful for that this morning? And so David, yes, he acknowledged the unrelenting struggle. But he confessed the overriding truth. Thou, O Lord, art a shield about me. Hear my glory and the one who lifts my head. Lee Strobel shares this account of a baptism service that he was doing He told people before they came to the platform to be baptized to take a piece of paper, write down a few of the sins that they had committed and fold that paper. When they came up to the platform, there was a large wooden cross on the stage and they were told to take that piece of paper, take a pen and pin it to the cross because the Bible says that our sins are nailed to the cross with Jesus and fully paid for by his death. Then turn and come to the pastor and be baptized. Strobel said, I want to read you a letter a woman wrote who was baptized in one of those services. She said, I remember my fear. In fact, it was the most fear I ever remember in all of my life. I wrote as tiny as I could on that piece of paper, as tiny as I could, the word abortion. I was so scared that someone would open that paper and read it and find out it was for me. I wanted to get up and I wanted to walk out of the auditorium during the service. The guilt and fear were that strong. My turn came, I walked toward the cross and I pinned the paper on that cross. I then went toward the pastor to be baptized. He looked me straight in the eyes. I thought for sure he was gonna read this terrible secret I had kept from everybody for so long. But instead I felt like God was telling me I love you, it's okay, you've been forgiven. I felt so much love for me a terrible sinner It's the first time I ever really felt forgiveness and unconditional love. It was unbelievable. It was indescribable. Can I just ask you this morning, do you have inside of you a secret sin? You wouldn't even want to write down on a piece of paper out of fear that somebody might open it and find out. Can I tell you something about Jesus that I know? The enemy will say, there is no help for you in God. But his word says, he is a shield about us. He is the glory and the one that lifts our head from shame. Say amen if you believe that. We must confess the overriding truth. Thirdly, we must act in unswerving confidence. Verse 4, I cried unto the Lord and He heard me from His holy hill. I love this next statement that we're gonna put on the screen I loved it, one, because I wrote it, but because I also think it's really good. The location of the one crying out doesn't matter. Just the location of the one who answers. David's in a cave of shame. I cried unto the Lord in my lowest point. Doesn't really matter where I'm at because he heard me out of his holy hill. Aren't you thankful for that? He doesn't move. No matter how deep my shame gets, he doesn't move. Doesn't really matter how deep the pit is I'm in. David and his men were in a dark place. Look again at verse 23 and 30. The country wept with a loud voice, and the people crossed over. The king crossed over too, and the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. And David went up and wept as he went, and he had his head covered. He went barefoot. And all the people covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. But God had moved. They'd been pushed off the throne. They didn't even have sandals on. They had their heads covered. They were headed to a cave. They're weeping. But God was still in his holy hill, and he answered. That's the voice we listen to, not the voice of Absalom, not the voice of our enemies. Listen to me. Look right here. When you are being ridiculed by your enemy, save your voice for crying out to God. Don't use your voice to cry out on social media about how you're being beat up. Don't use your voice to cry out to your friends. Don't use your voice to mope and pout. Cry out to God and he will hear you out of his holy hill. Say amen if you believe that. We must act in unswerving confidence. And finally, we can then experience an unshakable peace. I laid down and I slept. And I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. David had this unshakable peace because God had sustained him. He had learned to be still and listen to the voice of God. Pastor Clayton, if you want to come, I want to read your story. Why don't you stand with me if you would? We're really almost done. Just don't leave. Um, I'm not that close to done that I want you to say goodbye yet, but. um, James Hamilton wrote a book called Directions. And he tells the story, um, before refrigerators were used, ice houses were used to preserve food. Ice houses had thick walls, they had no windows a tightly fitted door. In winter, when the streams and the lakes were frozen, large blocks of ice were cut from those frozen waters and they were hauled to the ice houses. And they were covered with sawdust. And a lot of times those ice blocks would last well into the summer. One man lost a valuable watch while he was working in an ice house. Searched diligently for it, carefully raking through the sawdust, but he couldn't find it. His fellow workers also looked, but their efforts were futile as well. And finally, a small little boy heard about the fruitless attempts to find that watch, and so he slipped into the ice house during the noon hour. Very soon, he came out with a watch. Maze, the men asked him how he had found it. He said, I closed the door. I lay down in the sawdust. And I kept very still. And soon I heard the watch ticking. We need to learn to be still and hear the voice of God. When the enemy says, that there is no help for you in God, the voice of the Holy Spirit whispers quietly, you're more than a conqueror through me. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. As far as the east is from the west, So far have I removed your transgressions from you. I am a shield about you. I'm your glory. I'm the one that will lift up your head of shame. We listen to the enemies. We listen to our own emotions. We listen to those around us. Life is so hectic. Fears are so great. Enemies are so vast. our shame is so devastating that we don't sit still and listen to God but he is speaking and he is speaking to you in this song are you still peeking into that deserted alley of your past failure and sin are your enemies saying there is no help for you in God Let me assure you, God is a shield about you. He is your glory. He lifts your head from shame. You can rest in peace. And he will keep you and sustain you. Bow your heads with me if you would. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you are a shield about us, the glory and the one that lifts our head up those who are here this morning who may have lived their lives peeking into that alley of their failure and sin. Today, God, I pray that they would turn to you and let you remove that shame and heal them with your holy presence. heads bowed for just a moment this morning. Let me ask you, possibly you're here today. First of all, I'm going to ask this. You don't even know Jesus. You're not living for Him. Your heart's not right with Him. You know it's not right. You know that you're not ready to meet Him. Should Jesus come or should your life be taken, you know that you're not ready to stand before God, but you just simply say, Pastor Kevin, by up, raise right hand. Would you pray for me? I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life today. I want to give my life to Him completely. Is there anyone in this room that would say, would you pray for me? I want to surrender my life to Jesus. Anyone in this place? Anyone in this room? And your head still bowed then for just a moment. Nobody looking around. If you're here today and you can relate David or Amir peeking into that alley of your past failure living with that shame and almost believing the lie of the enemy that there is no help for you in God if that's you today but you by an upraised hand would say I want to confess the overriding truth thou O Lord art a shield about me If you're struggling with that today, but you want to walk away from that shame, would you just slip up a hand right where you're at this morning? There are hands all over the place. Anyone else this morning? You can just put your hand up back down. We're going to sing this chorus this morning. There are many hands that went up. we sing that chorus, I'm going to ask you, it's still really early, intentionally. I'm going to ask you, you don't have to, but don't let the enemy talk you out of it. I'd like for someone to stand with you and pray for you today. If you raised your hand and you want to walk away from that shame today as we sing this chorus, I invite you just to come and stand. And after you've come, we're going to have some others stand with you and pray with you. But if you today want to walk away from that shame and you want to confess the overriding truth, God is a shield about us. He's the glory and the lifter of our head. I want you to come. Just come and stand across the...